We all know that the role we prepare for early in life will only be the beginning of our story. We will likely move through multiple different types of employment and have a range of different types of working arrangements, possibly full-time, sometimes self-employed, um, as an entrepreneur or a gig economy worker. We'll likely cycle through all of these. So it's clear that we'll all need to be prepared to learn new skills and build new networks constantly throughout a long working life. But how do we prepare to be future capable and what role do universities play in this process? Professor Ruth Bridgestock has researched all these issues. She puts forward the idea that we all need to think about the idea of being key shaped. That is, we need to have a number of areas of technical depth, but also a number of areas of interest where we play and dabble. Ruth is currently National Teaching Fellow at Queensland University of Technology and has just accepted a new role as Dean of the Faculty of Education, Arts and Social Sciences at the University of South Australia. Welcome Ruth. Uh, so for the listeners, we've got Ruth in her last week as a Queenslander, so she's um, made the choice to go to South Australia. So tell us about the role that, you, that you're currently in Ruth and uh, the, the role that you're going to. Oh yeah, absolutely. So um, at present, I am Associate Professor within the Creative Industries Faculty um, here at QUT and I've just um, completed a National Senior Teaching Fellowship called Graduate Employability 2.0. Um, I'm moving to the University of South Australia to move into a Dean Learning and Teaching role um, and Professor of Higher Education. Um, on to, to new exciting adventures and more skills for me. More skills. Yes. So Ruth just shared with me that um, <laughs> that this is uh, when I asked her why she was uh, she's making a very poor choice to leave Queensland. <laughs> that she said it was the it was the next thing for her to learn. So I think you've sort of following your own advice, Ruth, about um, sort of taking destiny into your hands in terms of your learning. So your things are very much about continuous learning through our lifetime and through our careers. So that's kind of what guided you into the into the next role is what um, what you needed to learn for your next step. Oh yes, most definitely. Um, my my research very much suggests that um, the absolute number one thing that we can all do is keep learning, whether formally or informally, and just accumulating skills and capabilities as we go with all of our experiences. Um, and yeah, my own career is no exception. Mm. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's really interesting. I often wonder whether when we ask um, sometimes our students, where are you going to be in five years? Um, whether that's a very helpful question anymore, whether we just uh, learn the skills that we feel we need to learn to, so that we have multiple options. Um, if I, am I on a good track there? Yeah, that sounds about right to me. Mm. I mean, my advice to, to people is very much uh, pursue what you're interested in and what feels right uh, next yeah. to, to learn. Yeah. Um, because we, we're never quite sure um, exactly what the next opportunity is going to be. Um, for a while there, and I have a background in career development learning and, um, and uh, I was a, a careers consultant for a while. And there's a lot of emphasis in, in that field about um, coming up with a career plan for yourself mm -hmm. and even writing down specific uh, plans and, and goals and these sorts of things. Um, but from my experience, I've discovered that you know, life and careers are in so much flux mm -hmm. that doing that sort of thing can sometimes shut you down a bit. Mm -hmm. And so um, what I tend to do now is follow my nose. <laughs> it's all about happenstance. Mm -hmm. you know, I know roughly what I'm, I'm interested in, um, the kinds of skills that I want to acquire next, and let's, let's see, see where, where that goes. takes me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So, I mean, your role with so it's graduate um, skills that, that your your role was looking at. Mm -hmm. So, um, I know that the dean of our faculty, uh, the last gathering had, she said, we have to be aware. You know, we educators that um, we're preparing our graduates less for jobs and more for work. Um, and I, I, mean, I, I certainly know what she means by that, but well, how would you interpret that sort of statement? Oh, that's a, it's a great statement. It's very affirming to my research as well. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, this goes yeah, back I'm, to... I'm in the faculty of business, I yeah. guess. Yeah. It doesn't really matter what faculty, you know, like graduates, you know, across the university, the advice would be the same. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. No matter what field you're in, um, and this goes back to my, um, to, to my PhD research. Um, what I did in my PhD was I looked at what are the key skills and capabilities that, that people need in order to be successful in their careers. Um, I was particularly interested in people in the creative industries because at that stage, um, creative industries were, were sort of seen as, as the most insecure uh, kinds of, of jobs role, job roles that you could get. You know, it, the task of, of self-managing one's career, the portfolio career and so on, underemployment, etc. But increasingly, um, we're seeing this in, in all industries, um, whether that's science or manufacturing or business or, or engineering, um, the, the traditional organisational career is breaking down. Um, and we're all tasked far more to, to self-manage our careers. And that includes the learning within those careers as well. So um, I view very strongly that um, higher education and formal education generally um, in the post-compulsory space is there to, to prepare you for um, a wide range of, of possibilities. So even if you're doing a vocational or a professional program, um, like, like nursing or like engineering, um, it's likely that you're not going to end up in that career forever. Um, the latest statistics that are coming out are, are indicating that people have 14 careers during their lifetime, not 14 jobs. jobs. Yeah, yeah. No, and I've <laughs> often wondered what, what constitutes an actual, you know, how we define the career exactly. Mm. So, because I think it's, it's not easy because um, I think moving from one career to another um, often depends on our, and I know you'll come to this later, about your networks, mm -hmm. you know, and your social mm -hmm. networks. So actually finding that new network that will pivot you to an actual new career is, is not actually that easy. Yeah, yeah oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. This is the top question that I get from, um, from master's students, master's coursework students who are coming back wanting to upskill and retrain to move into to a new area. They say, how do I build those networks and how do I, how do I build that, that social capital? Yeah. Um, and I think the beginning of, of the answer there is, first of all, to do with your own identity. Um, it's, it's going, okay, I'm, I'm now viewing myself as an emerging, insert new profession name here. Um, and then it's about putting yourself out there and taking that risk and, and going to those networking events, as scary as they are. I think everybody finds them scary. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're out there, if you find them scary, you're not alone. Yeah, walking into a room where you don't actually know people and doing networking in an intelligent way. You know, absolutely. Uh, not in a superficial way. It's, uh, yeah, it's so important. Yeah. Mm. It's, um, it's about having that initial and yet genuine connection with somebody else who is interested in similar sorts of things to you. Mm. Um, I think it's also about uh, having an online presence that reflects both what you can do now and where you want to go. 
Um, so it's perfectly okay to be a bit aspirational in your LinkedIn profile um, and, and link it to your, your latest ideas, perhaps through your blog or your online portfolio. I mean, we know that 100% of recruiters and employers, first thing that they do um, when, when they hear about a job applicant or a potential intern is they Google, Google that person. So it's really important to have that effective and aspirational inspirational online presence. Mm. Um, and possibly that it's the Australian way, although I think it might be changing to kind of downplay a little bit. I certainly know I do in my LinkedIn profile. Uh, um, I, don't, I don't upsell it at all. Uh. But, you know, I'm of that generation maybe, so that I need to rethink all that. Because <laughs> we're going to be working until we're 70, isn't that right? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and beyond. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you scare me, right? <laughs> and mildly exhausted. <laughs> But in the presentation that I, that I, you know, first became acquainted with your research, um, we talked about the way that universities have traditionally cast their role, I suppose, in um, preparing graduates mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, people at throughout their professional life uh, for the workforce because we're a university of the real world. Um, and you're suggesting that universities perhaps need to rethink um, both our role and, and the way that we approach um, the learning task. What have you got to share with us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so traditional university education has, has been criticised for quite some time, for more than a decade now. Um, the argument is that we tend to turn out what they call I-shaped graduates. So these people with um, a certain amount of disciplinary depth, um, but not the capability to, um, to move beyond a specific disciplinary area. So... Um, these I-shaped graduates um, are seen as not being particularly employable because they can't transfer their skills um, into other, other industries or, um, or, or other kinds of fields. And even if they are, I might say, and what... Uh a double I, meaning the double degree. Yeah. It's just like two exactly. bodies of technical knowledge. Yeah. Parallel um, <laughs> railway tracks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so this, this has been very strongly criticised for quite some time. And the key response that's, that's come back has been around the T-shaped graduate, um, which is, you know, you've, you've got some level of disciplinary depth, um, but also the, the transferable capability. So things like, you know, written communication, oral communication, um, informational literacies and, and so on. Now, my research um, starts to interrogate this notion as well um, and perhaps critique it a little. And I did a study um, back in 2014, 2015, of outstandingly successful innovative people. Um, in STEM, so science, technology, engineering and maths disciplines, um, and also creative disciplines. Um, they were all Australian, they were all mid-career. I wanted to find out, you know, what makes you outstandingly successful? So what are the capabilities that you have um, and how have you acquired those and what does this mean for higher education? Um, the top finding out of that um, was that these people were key-shaped people rather than T-shaped people. So key-shaped people are people who have quite diverse disciplinary educational backgrounds. Um, maybe not necessarily formal education backgrounds, but they do have at least one area of depth discipline-wise. And then they've kept on accumulating various sorts of, of bodies of knowledge that are quite disparate um, from what you would think. So, for instance, I had one participant... Um, 
who was a visual, communica uh, visual communicator, uh, but had uh, a background in maths as well. The reason that this um, so-called key-shaped um, person is, is important is that there are a number of reasons. The first is it affords them a different perspective um, on disciplinary questions. So um, instead of being your typical common or garden person in a discipline, um, applying the same sorts of skill sets and the same sorts of perspectives, they're able to combine different knowledge sets, which gives them an interesting niche. Um, the second thing is they're able to connect with people outside um, their disciplinary uh, social networks. So this allows them to plug into multidisciplinary team possibilities. Mm. And we know that the way that, that innovation works is by combining mm. um, different knowledge regimes and different skill so sets. Between, you know, for whatever problem they're working on, they're a link between two different disciplines. Precisely. Yeah. And we always need someone who can make that bridge, I yeah. think, yeah, and bring them two together. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And when I heard you say that, I, I thought of um, Steve Jobs, who talks about you've got to have a lot of dots to join up, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, like to, to solve some of the big questions. You can't just all have dots, clustered of dots in one area. You've got to have a dispersed range of dots so that you can join them up. Yeah, I think it's so true. But my first... Um, my first uh, degree was actually in music um, before it went to, um, you know, to obviously to management and other mm -hmm. disciplines. And, I, and sometimes I think, oh, my God, why didn't I do economics? That would be so much more <laughs> useful now. But now I don't regret it because um, I think it does provide that additional dimension. Yeah. Most definitely. Mm. One of my first degrees was in music as well. Is that right? I yes. guess we shared that, didn't you? You're, you're an opera singer. Yes. Yeah, that's yes, right. It's all coming back to me now. Yeah. <laughs> And I guess because we're both musicians, what does that add? Uh, just, you know, generally that the humanities is a broadening and enriching thing anyway. But there's just a lots of cultural references that become extraordinarily useful. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And also just how to master um, a specific technical discipline and, and what's involved in that. Yeah. Mm. There's... Um it, musicians uh, tend to have um, well-developed um, technical capabilities and they know how to develop technical capabilities, which is the most important Knowing thing. how to, yeah. that's right. Yeah. And the second thing is about um, a lot of musicians are very good at maths. Yeah, I've noticed yeah. that. Yeah. It wasn't exactly true for me. But <laughs> <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't bad, but I wasn't excellent either. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. Yeah. I don't know what that, why, why that is. It's um, a certain way the brain develops, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have heard recently that um, that someone had said whether young people are going to be capable of doing the what what does uh, what's the thousand hours or whatever it is that's going to be involved in learning any sort of technical ability like that. We just don't have the attention span mm. anymore. Mm. I wonder if that's. I hope it's not true. Um, otherwise, where are we going to get the musicians from? Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, definitely. I mean, it, yeah. it's uh, the the number that that Gladwell, Gladwell, um, thank you. Yeah, popularized is the ten thousand hours. Yeah, I was down by uh, <laughs> ten, ten. By, by a few thousand. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, I mean, what that translates to is, you know, if you pick up an instrument aged thirteen, by the time you're in your twenties, you should be right. Yeah. 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 So um, what I found in my study of outstandingly successful, um, innovative people is that typically They'd had some kind of experience in middle school or just beyond early high school that switched them on to, yeah, I'm really passionate about something, mm. you know. And, and it doesn't probably matter what it is necessarily. Not really, no. not really. Yeah. But it becomes about, you know, accumulating those hours and that practice to mm. get that initial disciplinary expertise. Yeah, so it's learning how to 
uh, persist with a disciplinary uh, yeah, routine um, that, and knowing how to learn that's going to stand you in good stead, I think. Well put. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I suppose um, going back to the idea about the, the I-shaped and the T-shaped, mm. um, so I think um, our role here in uh, graduate schools of business is, is about the spine, about the T. Mm. So we think that we take people with disciplinary knowledge, you know, to be, can come from a range of disciplines, you know. You can be come from an engineering background or an artistic background or retail, whatever it is, and we add the, the uh, spine of the T yeah. so we, that we broaden out. But even so, I mean, how we do that, certainly we have a, a problem-based um, approach. So yeah. I think you advocate that as well. So it's got to start with the challenge. And then people, if I understand your research correctly, the way we naturally seek to learn is to go to our immediate peers to say, how do you solve this problem? Um, and then you find your broader network, um, so which we try to encourage through, um, you know, encouraging our students to form mentoring and uh, partnerships and to expand, you know, lift their gaze and expand their social horizon, um, mm. professionally speaking. Um, but I, I think we could do even more in that regard about following the natural processes of the way professionals learn. Is that your um, experience as well? Or is that your advice? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So what you've just described there um, summarises uh, really very well um, some of the findings of, of my research. Um, I'm very interested in uh, what are the optimal ways that people can learn um, these, these kinds of skills. So the disciplinary agility and the key-shaped person that I was talking about just before um, and, and things like um, enterprise and also social network capability um, and innovation capability. And what my research um, has suggested is that uh, no matter what the, the disciplinary area um, people tend to prefer to learn hands-on, so in a situated way. So as you say, with um, a problem, mm. um, whether or not that's in a small group or individually. And we know this when, when we reflect on what we do naturally anyway. You know, you get a new iPhone or a new Android phone and you're there, you don't read the book of words first. You, you'd start pressing buttons. No, you to don't go to the manual. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, uh, then we turn to our community of practice. Now, typically, this is a group of, you know, seven to 12 people that we work with fairly closely or we interact with regularly. They might be friends as well or, or, or people who um, share interests with us. These are our key collaborators. They're our key support people. They're the people that, you know, when you've got an issue, a hairy issue with your phone or with filling out a form, something like this, you're, you're on the phone to them or you're having coffee with them, these sorts of things. They're very important, this community of practice. Where higher education tends to fall down, um, if I was to, to name one key uh, area of criticism, is in the third um, area of learning, and that's the networked learning. So um, naturally, we all have a much wider network of people um, with whom we learn and from whom we learn. So these might be people that we're connected with online via social media. They might be acquaintances. They might be friends of friends. Um, they might be uh, users of, of a particular product, etc. And what we find is that um, the people who are very, very good at professional learning tend to be connected with a very broad, um, very diverse um, 
network of, of people. And the beauty of this network is that it's there once you're connected with it. You don't have to do a lot to, to maintain that network. And yet, you know if you need that oboe player, or you need the Perl programmer, or the person who, you can, who can give you a little bit of information about how your oven range hood works, you know, you, you can go there. Mm. You can go there. They're there. I call it passive with agentic possibility. Mm. So reflecting upon higher education and the way that we tend to do things, we tend to do a lot of stuff in lectures and tutorials, um, neither of which correspond particularly well to the way that we naturally learn. Mm. Um, and also, we tend to keep our learners behind um, a walled garden, I suppose, instead of, of um, fostering those networks outside that they're going to be using um, for the rest of their lives. Yeah, I can, say, I can see the beauty of that. And I, I think we're sort of getting there. But I, I think now that particularly graduate schools and business MBA programs can be yeah. accelerators. Um, of those kind of processes. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And um, a little bit, uh, you know, sometimes providing those communities of practice, mm -hmm. you know, particularly with the peers in which you, you engage with your, your MBA studies or whatever postgraduate endeavour. Um, and also encourage them to, to look broader, you know, to start building that larger, that third um, that third level of network. Of network, yeah, absolutely. Finding, yeah. Yeah, and, and having the, the courage and resilience to actually go and knock on doors. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Taking your heart in your hands and, and saying, right, I'm going to make this connection. But this is, this is one thing that I do like about um, the MBA program. It's that um, you have the opportunity to build those transdisciplinary networks um, within the cohort. So you, you are bumping up against people from, from all different mm. kinds of backgrounds, You're right, that is one which is what you need yeah, um, right. in order to, to become this key-shaped person. Mm. And it does foster those connections outside. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. So in your new role as dean, uh, that's, um, I would say, um, it requires a lot of learning on the job, I would expect. Oh, yes. Yeah. So mm -hmm. how, how are you going to approach that? What's going to be your learning strategy as you approach this new challenge? Uh-huh. Good question. Well, I've already started. Um, and the key thing that I've, I've started with is I've started having conversations with people. Um, so I, I flew down to Adelaide uh, a fortnight ago and I spent a couple of days at an executive retreat with some of my immediate colleagues. Mm. And I've actually come up with a contra strategy there around listening rather than, than jumping in right away, um, finding out where the strengths are, um, checking in, and then um, maybe coming up with one or two things that I can, I can start with to, I guess, strengthen and um, capacity build. Beyond that, yeah. So um, it's going to. I'm still in the phase where I'm figuring stuff out, and I'm listening to, to colleagues, and I'm connecting myself. Connecting. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And knowing where to go to uh, when you have those questions. Exactly. It's yeah. knowing the people who know the things. things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, look, we really wish you well on that. But Thank we you. always finish with um, what we call "that's interesting." Mm -hmm. So, and and it can come from any range of things. So. Uh, <clears throat> I guess if I reflect on, you know, what I found uh, interesting in the last week or so, I listened to a podcast with Mark Andreessen. Um, so he was the Netscape. He's uh, like a titan of Silicon Valley. Um, and he was, again, reiterating that um, 
about, uh, I guess, the pace of um, technology and change. So he's suggesting that anything that can be software will be software, and mm. I'm thinking that's including education, mm -hmm. um, and that what will follow is that the people with the best software will win um, when it's winner-takes-all. Uh, the person, the people with the best software will win. So I've been reflecting on that quite a bit, actually, at the moment. What's captured your attention, I guess, in the last week or so? You've been moving, so I imagine <laughs> lots of things. <laughs> Yes, yeah. I'm a little distracted at present. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> pet moving pet and, moving. and yeah. boxes and, and all sorts of things. Um, let let me think about this. What I'm I'm really enthusiastic about, and one of the next things that I want to do, is I actually want to do a research project um, that looks at how higher education engages with future capabilities. Mm. Um, I, re I really want to have a look at, very systematically, um, the kinds of capabilities that we seek to develop in our learners, whether undergraduate or postgraduate. Um, I want to have a look at the pedagogic approaches that we use. Um, and I want to, to really interrogate um, it, what needs to be human and what needs to be um, technology-enabled. Mm. Because I, I think that in all of this... Um, and all of this hype about you know artificial intelligence and and vast processing power etc cetera, etc cetera, it's easy to get carried away and lose the humanity of it because i think that the future um, for us is so exciting it's so exciting i mean we're, we're all um hearing about um media reports saying you know 40 percent of our jobs are going to disappear mm. And yet other jobs are being created all the time. Mm. And, um, and there's so much possibility out there if we can keep on um, reinventing ourselves mm. and being enthusiastic about our learning. And being enthusiastic about our learning. So, look, you've certainly contributed to our learning on learning. <laughs> <laughs> so we wish you um, huge good luck. For, and uh, I congratulate the University of South Australia on, uh, on their acquisition. Oh, thank yeah. you very much. Yes. thank you for making the time, Ruth. No worries. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Exec Insights. For more information about QUT's executive education programs, please search QUT Executive Education and you'll find a full range of our programs and services.